luck, 20% skill, 15% concentrated power of will, 5% pleasure, 50% pain, and 100% reason to remember the name. Winston 101. This interview is brought to you by the Canadian Brew House. I go to the Canadian Brew House all the time to watch my favorite sports because of the atmosphere. With the amount of TVs around, it's impossible to miss a second. The Brew House is also the place that I go to on my cheat days. With the flavor of their poutine and burgers, it's always a reward. This interview is brought to you by the Casey Foundation. This year, the Casey Foundation is celebrating its 12th year anniversary. 12 years of dedication and countless hours, all to achieve a goal that they set when they started. And through those 12 years, they've greatly impacted children with autism, allowing them to receive services and assisting them with their unique needs, which is often unaffordable for kids in need. Check out their website and donate money at thecaseyfoundation.org to enrich the lives of children with autism. My goal is to figure out the tips and tricks of professional football players and also give you a glimpse into their personal and professional lives. In this episode, I talk to Angus Reed. Angus is a former center with the BC Lions and current motivational speaker and author. I love Angus's stories about when he traveled to Germany or had to dodge beer cans at the Grey Cup, but my favorite is when he talks about his near-death experience. He gave me a different view of life. He talks about the importance of having a dream and working through whatever obstacles come in your way, but in the end, not defining yourself about how you play on the football field, but how you are as a person and a father. Angus uses his experience in football as a base for other things, and as a result, I can call him a success in all aspects of life and a mentor to me. But without further ado, I hope you enjoy. Hey, Angus, I'm glad we got a chance to sit down and chat. Oh, thank you for having me. I heard you speak at my indoor football camp last winter, and I found it really motivating. When I decided to do this podcast, I knew that you were going to be a person that I want to interview. One of the stories that I found fascinating was about your ruptured appendix. You're pretty lucky to be here. Could you tell me the story? Sure, and, and you are right. I'm, I'm very lucky to be here. I was entering the ninth grade, and I was an extremely, I guess I still am an extremely stubborn guy that thought I had all the answers and could take care of all my own problems. And it was early in basketball tryouts, and all of a sudden I got a, a sharp pain in my stomach, bottom right of my stomach, that dropped me. And off I kind of crawled to the washroom, and I was really sick and vomiting and vomiting. But because, you know, I'm in basketball tryouts, and, and you don't want to show that you're in pain or there's problems, you just sort of suck it up and come back out and, and keep trying to play. And this pain was really, really something I had never felt, but I was sure I'd probably pull the muscle or maybe even torn a muscle in my stomach. I don't know, but, you know, you want to make the team, and you don't want to be a wimp that, that complains. So I just kind of kept going and I made my way home that night and hid in my bedroom because I couldn't stand up very well and I couldn't eat food and I just felt awful and I was in severe pain but I'm one of five boys the youngest of five boys with the younger sister so you learn not to complain anyways because your brothers make fun of you no matter what so you know you just sort of deal with it the next day I went to school and then the pain got worse and worse and I kind of kept doing it because I didn't want to say that my stomach hurts or I'm in pain you know you just sort of don't ask for help like a lot of kids probably in the ninth grade don't and this went on for six days, if you can believe it. And it got to the point where I couldn't even sit up anymore. And I was in so much pain that I could hardly breathe. And I finally had to tell my parents. I couldn't hide from my family anymore in my bedroom and pretend I'm doing homework, which I wasn't doing. And finally, when I told my mother, she, you know, she asked where, where the pain is so bad. And she lightly touched my stomach. And I hit the ceiling screaming. And, uh, you know, my appendix had blown. And when they time they rushed me to the hospital, they realized that I had... I had ruptured six days earlier. I, I really should have been dead. There was no way I should have survived that. That was sheer luck. It was really stupidity on my end, thinking that I can always solve my own problems, that I don't need to ask for help. And I spent a long time in the hospital because you can't take your appendix out at that point. And it exploded, and, and, and there was just poison that runs through your stomach. And it really was, and it should have killed me. And I was in there for, uh, I think, about two months. They thought I was going to die. I, I, you know, I, I was raised Catholic. I had the last rites read to me. Uh, there was funeral preparations being made. My family was being flown back from back east, my grandmother and whatnot. And my brothers were being nice to me, so I knew something was wrong. You know, they don't tell you you're going to die, but they, they're, they're being really nice, and they're whispering, and they're making uh, plans for other things. And 
you, you really know you're probably at the end. And I was about to give up on my life. I'd lie there for two months, withering away, not getting better. And my mom would spend the nights with me, sitting beside me, because she knew how scary it was for a young boy to be in the hospital uh, that and be that sick. And there was a moment in that night where I, I leaned to my mother, and I uh, I'd had enough. I didn't have any fight left in me. And I told her, Mom, I, I just wanted to tell you know how much I love you. I love you and you and Dad. You've been the greatest parents ever. But I'm not going to make it through tonight. I, I don't have anything left in me, and I'm going to close my eyes, and, and I'm going to die. And it was interesting what my mom did. I don't know what other moms would do out there, but, you know, she kind of demanded that I get up right there. Like, let's go. Time to get up. And I hadn't been out of bed in two months. I'd been lying there with all the tubes in me and, and just sort of withering away. And she wouldn't let me quit. And she kind of instructed me and forced me to get up. And, and by that, I mean she helped me out of bed and wouldn't let me close my eyes and drift off, wouldn't let me quit on myself. And she let me lean on her, and she kind of made me stay up that night and, and dragged me through the hospital floors, not letting me give up and forcing me to fight when, when I had nothing left and pulled me through till morning. And it's kind of crazy to think about this, but I was out of the hospital about three days later. I got better. I, I started regaining strength. And from that moment on, I learned a valuable lesson, two lessons I'll say. One, uh, don't be so stubborn to not ask for help when there's problems in your life. Thinking you can solve all your problems might end up killing you. Don't, don't, you don't need to be that stubborn. There's people that care about you. You should reach out for help. And two, you never, ever, ever quit on yourself at the end. You, you, you always keep fighting. You always be okay leaning on people to help. You never, you never throw in that towel at the end when it gets really bad because, you know, you learn it's always darkest right before it turns light. And, and whether you got to lean on someone for help, lean on them. Get through that time. Do not ever quit. And I've carried those lessons with me, I think, uh, from that moment on the rest of my life. And they've really, really helped. Yeah, those are pretty good lessons to learn. But what a scary moment. So, um... On, like, day two or three, what did you think it was? I was convinced that I had torn a muscle in my stomach. I mean, the appendix is in the bottom right corner of your stomach, right at the bottom there. I didn't know what an appendix was. I was going to ninth grade. What do you know, right? I just, I figured I had torn an abdominal muscle. And because I couldn't stand up straight and it, it hurt so much, the only thing I could think of was I tore a muscle. And I thought, okay, if you just sort of get through this, It'll, it'll heal itself like, like muscles do. And I'm not just going to tell people my stomach hurts because my brothers will make fun of me. And that's what a, you know, what a 13-year-old thinks. I don't want to be made fun of by my brothers, tell them that my stomach hurts, you know, I don't feel so good. And so you learn to just sort of deal with it and, and figure it'll get better on its own. And that's the big lesson. When there's something wrong, ask for help because you don't know what it could be. And there's people that do know what the problem is, particularly for a young person. You know, we don't have all the answers. We haven't experienced enough in our life to have been through much. When there's an issue, ask people, what, you know, this is what's going on. What could it be? I'm not sure. I mean, let's say it was a pulled muscle. We could get to the bottom of it and realize that and have avoided having to hopefully have spent two months in the hospital and almost died because of it. So, you know, when there's a problem in your life, particularly as a young person, a lot of them think, one, I can deal with my own issues. I don't need to help. I don't need the help. So they try to do it. And two, they're embarrassed. They're embarrassed to reach out and say, I need help. And don't do that. You know, people are there. People care about you. People support you, whether it's your parents, your friends, teachers, coaches. And they're there for you when problems happen. And I think we need to remind people it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to say, you know what? I'm struggling right now in something. I think something's really wrong, and I don't know what it is. But I need some help here. And that was a lesson I learned, and, and I'm telling you, for the rest of my life, I, I'm okay now asking people, listen, this is wrong. I don't know what's going on. I need some help. Okay, can you help me? Because I don't really know what to do here. Fortunately, I made it through that. Unfortunately, it was so severe, but maybe that's what it took to, to make that lesson stick with me for the rest of my life. Yeah. I heard that you're also a Tim Ferriss fan, just like Kari Jones. I got the four-hour work week for Christmas, and I'm slowly reading it. After listening to his podcast, I decided to start this podcast. Why did you like Tim's work? I like Tim's work because... He's extremely open-minded to learning from anybody that can add value to his life. He's not closed-minded and he doesn't think he has all the answers. He's a, he's a question asker. So he's interested in learning from everybody else, and I think that's a lesson we can all learn. And he's also not afraid to try. I know a lot of people uh, read a lot of things, learn a lot of things, but they don't do a lot of things. And the reason I like Tim Ferriss is because he will ask and learn and learn, and then he will do those things, and he will attempt them. So he doesn't just have knowledge, but he has wisdom. And, and a lot of people don't have both. They, they'll study and they'll learn about it, but they won't apply anything. And I'm a big fan of Tim's because he will, will scour the globe to find answers from people that have done these things and are, and are smarter than he is, and then he will take that and apply it to his own life 
so he can learn what they're teaching him and then make adaptions that are needed so what he can pass on, he's speaking from first-hand experience. And I think he's got the mindset that that'll never change, which is going to make him someone that'll never stop growing, never stop learning, uh, you know, never stop evolving, which I think is, is a trait that we should all learn from. There's always more to learn. There's always more to do. You got to be open-minded enough to, to allow that knowledge to come in, and you got to have the guts enough to keep testing yourself and, and attempting using this new knowledge to keep growing as a person. So, when did you first hear about Tim Ferriss? Uh, 2012. One of my teammates lent me the four-hour body. My big thing had always been physical performance, obviously being a pro athlete. So my whole life I've been studying, you know, how to eat better, how to train better, how to sleep better, like anything I could do to help make myself a better athlete. And so I had never heard of the four-hour work week, but he passed me along the four-hour body, you know, because here was a guy, Tim Ferriss, that had studied everything that I'd studied, but had done it much deeper than I had ever done. He had access to much smarter people than I had ever had access to, but a lot of the people that he was interviewing and using I knew of because I'd read their work. So I was intrigued because here was a guy that, you know, did things I did, but he went a lot deeper in terms of the study and the, and the drilling down. So I was intrigued and I, uh, you know, I read through the whole thing many, many, many times. I applied the stuff that I was interested in and tweaked some things in my life to it. And then from that point on, I started, you know, being exposed to what else Tim Ferriss had done. And I, and I told you earlier, I, I liked his mindset. He was interested in learning. He wanted to learn, you know, how can we be more efficient with everything we do so we can uh, bring more value to our lives and other people's lives and stop wasting time doing things that don't bring value to our lives or other people's lives. So ever since then, you know, he's been one of the guys that I keep up with because everything he does is trying to bring more value uh, to our lives. So why wouldn't I keep up to date with what he's doing? Because there's a lot in there I can take and, and, and apply myself. So what has been your favorite book? Still come back to the four-hour body a lot, but I got the Tools of Titans just after Christmas, which was really cool because, as you know, it compressed all of his podcasts, or I guess his top podcasts that he'd done over the years and, and kind of cherry-picked key, key parts of each one. And, and it's a great reference book because you're getting wisdom and knowledge from uh, countless people that have done amazing things in their lives, whether it be in, in health and fitness or in the financial world or in just kind of the peace of mind world. And you got to get a snapshot of all their lives. And what I liked about the way he did that book, it wasn't just them giving wisdom or, or, or ideas. It was them telling you how they actually live their lives. So you're looking at these people that many of us have heard about and, and maybe admired things that they've done. And they're telling you, this is what I eat for breakfast. This is what I do in the morning. This is how I keep a daily journal or, or this is how I go about structuring my day or my week. So you could look at things, and I have changed things in my life because I'd read these things saying, look, that makes sense. I never thought of that, and I can actually apply it because they're telling you what they're actually doing. It wasn't uh, just theoretical or, or, or philosophical ideas. It's practical information, and I, I keep coming back to it quite a bit as a reference guide. Use that one a lot, too, the tools of type. Yeah, that's one of the things I like about Tim Ferriss. He's not really a normal interviewer, and... He sort of brings the stories out of people. Getting to have interviews like him would be so amazing. Yeah, no, and I think as he grows in popularity and credibility, he obviously has broader access to, to even more people. So, And he's going to bring that to us. So why wouldn't I stay up to date with what he's doing? Because he keeps getting access to more interesting people, which means we have that access as well. So it's a win-win for everybody. Again, he's bringing value to our lives. It's a great thing. What's your morning routine? I've always kind of been an early guy. I get up about 5, 5.30. I do keep a daily journal now. It's very quick. Kind of get up early and take a couple moments to write down some gratitude, things I'm grateful for, a couple affirmations of things I, I'm reminding myself that I want to be that, you know, in that current time, whether I'm going to be a man that does what I say, you know, I, I have confidence in everything I do, or what, whatever is appropriate for how I'm, or what I'm needing to work on that day. And then I kind of write an action list, two to four or five things that I'm actually going to do today that's going to make today great. Uh, they may be, you know, calling a client. They may be getting that workout done. Uh, whatever I think I need to actually do. So at the end of the day, when I review the day, it's been a great day. And then I spend about 20 minutes doing some mobility work. I have a little room. You know, I've had 11 surgeries the last uh, couple years of my career. My body's pretty beat up. So I do a mobility move routine every single day before I start the day. You know, it's not weights. It's just sort of stretching and movement, get a little blood go, 
and then I'll take a quick shower. If it's about 6.30-ish, 6.45, and then I can kind of start making breakfast for my wife, and I got a, I got a little guy that's a year and a half old. So I get all that done before they're awake. It's kind of my quiet time, my hour in the morning to focus and kind of get my body physically and mentally ready to go have a great day. And then by the time breakfast started, my family's up. We can get to have a joint breakfast. It's really important for me to spend that breakfast time with my little guy, really, really cherish my breakfast with him. And then I'm off, get a workout in later in the afternoon before dinner that'll be kind of a weight training session i'll do that two or three times a week and and that's how i go about my day so how long ago did you start journaling was it just new thing that you started or yeah so i i have uh workout journals that i probably have from up to 10 years ago i would record my actual workout where my weight was sometimes what i was eating but it's honestly only been since the tools of titans that i've really adapted to taking this time to actually write down some things that the morning gratitude has been a big change in my life. Just, you know, I've always done it mentally, but to take the time and, and actually force myself to write it down has been really nice to get myself in a positive mindset for the day. No matter how bad you're feeling or trying to feel sorry for yourself or whatever it is, it's a nice little quick ritual to redirect, to remind yourself how fortunate you are to, to have the life you have currently and really how blessed you are to be surrounded by so many great people and so many great opportunities. And it redirects the mind to to only thinking positive thoughts now and and getting away from any type of negativity or complaining. So that's been recent, and uh, it's been great. And I'm at the point now where I cannot start a day without it. Like, it's triggered. I I look forward to it, and I feel good the rest of the day because now I'm in that right mindset where I'm in a space where I'm not thinking of all the bad things and, and the things that could go wrong, I'm, I'm open, realizing how fortunate I have, how I have it, and, and all the opportunities that lay before me, and then the action plans that I write down to make sure I actually seize these things and put myself in a mindset to, to go have a great day. So for breakfast, what sort of food do you eat, or is it something new every day? No, I'm, I'm a creature of habit. Uh, that's probably been the biggest change in my life. When I was an athlete, I had to play at about 300 or 310 pounds. And for me, that was heavier than my body wanted to be. I'm only about six foot one. So, I, you know, 300, 310 pounds was probably about 40 to 50 pounds heavier than my body wanted to be. So I was eating a ton of food when I was playing. And it was everything. I mean, I, I would have eggs and pancakes and toast and yogurt and bacon, whatever. As much as I could eat every day. And, and now, you know, I've wanted to lose that weight. And I'm down to about 255 pounds. I'm down about 50 pounds from my playing days. And what I've done is basically eliminated sugar from my life as best as humanly possible and pretty much got rid of the starches and, and, and the white carbs as best as I possibly can. So I'm very protein and, and vegetable heavy and, and some fat. So a breakfast for me would be four, maybe five eggs scrambled and some butter, some bacon with some spinach or something like that with some avocado and tea. That's pretty much what my breakfast would be. Almost every single morning, I'm having eggs every day, some kind of meat, probably some avocado, and then some, you know, some kind of greeny vegetable, probably a spinach or an arugula or something like that. Oh, that's really healthy. For me, a lot of people think I'm crazy doing that, but the one benefit I've had over my life, even in my playing days, I never really had a sweet tooth. I, I've always kind of had a meat tooth, so cutting out sugars and stuff wasn't really hard. I kind of like eating like this. I've always, uh, it's kind of natural for me to be a, a meat and a salad guy. It's just I had to eat a lot more starches before just because there was no way I'd keep that weight on. So it's been a, I don't want to say an easy eating transition, but it's lend itself to what I like to eat anyways. Do you meditate? Uh, no, I don't. I do sometimes do breathing exercises. I don't know if you're going to call that meditation. I've tried to do focusing exercises. You know, I stole this from Tony Robbins years ago. I used them on and off, but I do it a little bit more so now. It's about six to eight minutes of just breathing where you're kind of doing a one four, two, uh, in, hold, out. So let's say you, you inhale for five seconds, hold for 20 seconds, exhale for 10, inhale through the nose, hold with a full uh, expanded abdomen, and then a, a 10 count release through the mouth to exhale. I, I wish I did them daily. I don't. I try to sneak it in when I can. Do 10 rounds that. That's about six, six and a half minutes. Sometimes I do it with my eyes closed down. I try to focus on a point or a dot that I create just to just try to block things out. I don't know if you call that meditation. I, I wish I did it more. I don't do as much as I should, but I, I will do breathing quite a bit. Uh, that's helped me. So how do you find those breathing techniques help you? I find, I don't have any scientific proof to back this up, it it just sort of centers me, it gets good oxygen through my body, it gets good blood flow to get things going, 
it helps me wake up better than coffee. Uh, if I was to do it in the evening, it, it kind of preps me for sleep. It can slow down the heart rate a little bit. I'll do it a little bit right after I work out to try to bring the heart rate back down and get it under control, you know, after you have something, you know, really going on. Or if I'm uh, maybe getting worked up, I have a meeting or I'm doing a keynote, which I do a ton of, or I'm seeing a big event, and you're kind of getting hyped up, which is great, but you don't want to lose focus. So you, you take five minutes, get your breathing going. It kind of keeps everything in check and can kind of bring you back under control because if you lose control of the breath, that's when you can kind of lose control of everything and it trickles from there where your focus gets lost and all of a sudden, uh, you know, you start having things going all over the place, but you gather your breath, I find you can gather focus and once you've gathered focus, you have control and when you have control, you can perform in a way that you wanted to perform and not just let your emotions and anxiety take over, which happens a lot of times in stressful situations. Do you think it was difficult to begin doing that when you first started? You know, actually, physically, yes. I'm going to tell you, 10 runs out breathing for me at the beginning was hard. Uh, and that taught me a lot right there that I obviously didn't have optimal oxygen exchange in my body, so I needed to work on it. And it's humbling being a, a former pro athlete that was struggling doing simple breathing exercises. It taught me a lot about myself, but now physically it's not hard, but like everything else, it's just being disciplined enough to do it. So I'm not going to say it's hard to fit it in because it's six minutes. I mean, come on, everyone can make room for six. The, the difficulty is just carving out the discipline to make sure you actually do it. And I think that's the real genius of any of this stuff in life. You know, it's not hard to make a journal. It's not hard to eat well. It's not hard to exercise. It's hard to find the discipline to, to make the time to do it every single day. And that's where the beauty of life is, where it's not complicated and really isn't hard. But most people just find it hard to create or carve out the time to do it but once you do it enough it becomes part of your life so you know it's just a matter of making it a priority and honestly Winston for me it's what matters to you and if it doesn't matter to you then you're not going to do it so and if it doesn't matter to you then who cares so you know you got to figure out for yourself what's important for you in your life what matters most to you finding out what what that means and then prioritizing it accordingly. And I think a lot of people run into problems because they talk about what matters to them. But you see how they live their life, and they don't prioritize for those things that matter. So you got to ask them, does it really matter? Because if it's really, really important to you, you know, it's going to be top of your priority list, and then everything else should fall in behind. You know, it's just everything is prioritizing and, and creating habits based on those priorities, and that's what life really, really is about. It's difficult to get that stuff started, but, you know, if you don't, if you don't decide what's important to you, then how are you ever going to choose good habits? So it starts with understanding what matters most to you in your life. And for me, it's, you know, obviously my, my family and all that stuff, but on a personal level, it's being as healthy as I can and trying to function optimally so I can be the best person I can be for my wife, for my child, for my clients, for my friends. And that has a lot to do with what I'm putting in my body, how I'm exercising my body, uh, how well I'm functioning in terms of being able to focus. And, and that comes from breath and blood and oxygen exchange, all that stuff. So these little, these little, uh, these little drills or, or, or these, these little moments and, and habits to put in are, are important to get done. Uh, could you tell me a bit about your family? Sure. I'm, uh, I'm one of six kids. There's five boys and a girl in, in my family. I'm the youngest of five boys. My sisters are our, our baby sister. My oldest brother, Mark, played for the BC Lions in 1990 when Doug Flutie was there and whatnot. I was 13, 14 years old at that time. And so it was pretty great to, to be a, a kid that age and have access to a pro locker room and have your older brother playing pro football. He only played the one year, but it was a magical time for me to kind of build that possibility in my eyes and have a hero that lived in my house and say, wow, I want to do that and be like my brother. My other three brothers, there's twins there. One now is a cardiologist. He's a brilliant doctor on Vancouver Island. His twin is a school principal. Now he's on the, in the superintendent side, so he, he's a great, great educator. Uh, he, he runs a lot of the high schools in the Okanagan in, in British Columbia. My, my other older brother that's closest to me is Bruce. He played pro football in the CFL for Calgary St. Peter's for a couple of years, 93, 94. Then he went over and played seven years in Germany, which was an amazing experience. And now he uh, brings over, he's an importer of, of all kinds of Western European beer to Canada. So he's carved out a great career. He was really smart at leveraging football to build relationships over there to create a, a career for him back home. He's, he's back here now. And my little sister is a kindergarten teacher in North Vancouver. So all six Reed children are in, are in B.C., we're a very tight, close family. You know, we're, we, we still try to get together when we can. My parents try to see us as often as possible. We grew up very close. 
and we've stayed very close. And it's uh, I couldn't imagine being any other way. I mean, it was a crazy life having that that many kids, that many boys in a family, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. When I was doing my research, I noticed that you played in the German Football League with your brother. I've been learning German and, and have visited Germany twice to go visit my Opus family. Did you learn how to speak German there? A little bit. Uh, what is it? A kleiner Deutsche. My my Deutsche is not so good. I was only there for about six months, and what happened was I was in university, and my brother was playing pro there, and I went to visit him in the spring, and I ended up playing about half a season for fun. I mean, it was you know it was fun. It was a way to see the world. So it was a very short time, and I played a, I played a few games before I came back. To finish my college career. For me, it was more of an experience. He really learned the language. I mean, he lived there for six years. So I, I made some friends and whatnot, but mine was a pretty short dent there. But I'll tell you what, it was a ton of fun playing football in another continent and seeing how much they loved it over there. And that was a really, really cool experience. And I've been able to make a lot of friends that I still have to this day. Yeah, until I uh, started this podcast, I didn't even know that there was a European football league. Yeah, there's lots of football being played over there. In fact, it's growing pretty fast. I don't know about every country, but the more you look, the more you see football being played. We're talking, you know, in the Middle East. Iran's got football. Turkey's got football. You go all the way up to Russia, there's football leagues. Iceland's got football. Now, obviously, the the Western European countries, uh, you know, France and and Germany, in in the U.K., they play. In China, they're playing football now. And these are leagues where you're getting Americans and Canadians going over playing too like they're they're professional semi-professional leagues and it's growing a lot over there so you know it's shocking where they're playing football and even i learn every day just seeing things online on social media some news feeds that are coming over from the japan pro football league and i, I didn't know and, and you're seeing that the, the amount of teams there it's it's shocking and it's nice to see that football is becoming a, a global sport where was your favorite place to play in germany I, I lived in Hamburg, and I loved playing there. Our home field was great. I mean, we played in Dusseldorf and Braunschweig and, and Berlin, but I loved our hometown. I loved Hamburg. I loved the city. I loved the stadium. I loved the fans. You know, being there was a ton of fun. What did you like best about Germany? The people. You know, I found the people very friendly. You know, here I am coming as a Canadian. I didn't really speak the language. And, and everybody had time for you. Everybody had time for you with a smile. And, and really, you know, this was 1999. It was a while ago now, I guess. But everybody wanted to include you. And it was all about enjoyment. And the one thing I really, really loved, and I don't know if it's the same way anymore. I mean, that, it was a, quite a while ago now. But, you know, Sundays, everything was closed everything you know you weren't going to the mall you weren't going you weren't even going to the grocery store you had to do that before sundays and, and on sundays all families got together at whoever in the family had the backyard whether you kind of got out of the town to their cottage and you're talking 20 30 people would be spending the day just being together and they would barbecue you know they would have the sausages and the meats and and the, and the sauerkraut the potatoes it would just be a feast and they would always invite everybody else, too. So I was always invited to these, and everybody else was invited to these events. They took the time to enjoy each other's company, catch up on the week, have fun, laugh, listen to music, whatever it may be. And they understood the value of pausing and, and not shopping today and not going out to the stores and buying more things and just being busy with distractions. And they just spent time together, and that was what you did on Sundays there, they didn't allow you to do anything else because there wasn't anything else to do. And I'm sure things have changed now, and I'm sure, you know, the retail world has taken over, but that was a memory that always stuck with me in terms of how powerful that was and how great it was to have a day that was just carved out for people to spend time together, slow down, and just enjoy each other. I was wondering if you set goals. That's funny. I speak a lot in high schools, and and the, the topic of goals come out a lot. I'm not someone that has ever written down specific goals. I was always the guy that had, uh, I'll call it a vision or a mission. I knew what I wanted to do. It was never far from my mind. So I never really wrote things down. What I did was, I'm more of a visionary guy anyway. I'm an artsy guy. I see pictures. And I knew what I wanted. I would surround myself with visions of how that would look, whether that be heroes that I wanted to be like or images that portrayed it. And I would have my room and my locker and everything filled with it. So I was constantly surrounded by my vision. That was my mission. And I would just nonstop seek out answers to get there. And again, I learned from my appendix to not be shy to ask for help. So every day, I never really set goals because it wasn't like what I want to get done today. I was 24 hours a day every day of my life pursuing that that vision 
how can I get to that vision? And I was became really big at asking for help from everybody that I could, you know, taking their advice and applying their advice because I never let the vision be far from my mind. So it was burned into my brain because I saw it everywhere I went and I told everybody what I was going to do. So I had really primed my mind to constantly seek answers to make that vision a reality. That's how I've gone about it, doing it. I know a lot of people, you know, weekly, monthly, daily goals work for them to write them down and, and tick them off. I never worked that way. I built my mission based on a vision, and I had reminded myself every second of my life what that vision was, so my brain was primed to find solutions to make that a reality, and that, that's what worked well for me through every obstacle I'd moved through. Uh, my brain was always primed. How do we solve this? How do we solve this? And I had opened myself up due to my issues with my appendix to ask for help, ask for help, ask for help, and just keep seeking it. My brain kept looking, how do we, how do we make this picture reality? How do we make this picture reality? And that's been my way of achieving my success. How old were you when you set the goal to become a professional football player? Well, it kind of came in, in, in two phases. I think when I was really young, that's what I wanted to do. I was seeing my brother do it. But then when my appendix hit and, and, and I, I kind of got down in the dumps, I didn't play any sports. I didn't play any sports in the ninth grade, the 10th grade. I mean, people might not know this about me. I was in a depression. You know, I made it through out of the hospital, but I was really low on self-confidence, and I didn't really believe in myself, and I kind of lost sight of the ability of thinking I could do anything great with my life. And I just sort of got through school and, you know, was one of those guys that wasn't getting into trouble, but I wasn't pursuing anything with, with, with energy and enthusiasm. I didn't really have a goal. I didn't really have a vision. And near the end of the 10th grade, I knew I had to do something. I didn't know what it was going to be, and football seemed like it was an impossible thing that was reserved for these fantastic athletes, and I'd never played the sport. And I was so far behind now, I didn't think it was possible, but I thought, you know what, let's give it a shot. And I, I, I don't even know how I got the guts up to go out for the team. Uh, you know, if people have seen my TED Talk, they, they see the value of, of high school football where they don't cut anybody, so you can go out and make the team because they don't really get rid of anybody. So I thought, you know, well, let's give it a shot. What do I have to lose now? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm already kind of a nobody now that hasn't been doing anything anyway, so I'm going to go. You know, I, I'll tell you right now, it sounds nice for me to say at that moment I wanted to be a pro football player, but no, I, I just knew I needed to do something. And once I got into it, I wasn't very good, but I, I had learned to stick through things now, ask for help, uh, work on the things I've been told to work on, and then it kind of snowballed, and, and kind of halfway through that grade 11 year, my first year, I really fell in love with it and realized this is what I wanted to do. And so, again, I don't write down goals, but I made that mental decision, I'm pursuing this. And at that moment on, I surrounded myself with every vision possible, how I wanted it to look and, how, and who I wanted to be like. And I modeled, I modeled heroes, if you will, that I would look up to in that football world at that time and to, to learn how do they train, how do they eat, how do they dress, how do they play and I, I consumed my life with mimicking and acting out and, and doing the things that the best do and doing the things my coach instructed to do to get there. And that became it. You know, by, by my senior year in high school, uh, I was a man on a mission, and I was going to make this happen. I knew what a long shot I was, but, again, I never thought about how things aren't going to work out. I, my mind was primed to find answers, not excuses. From that moment on, it was, I'm going to do whatever it's going to happen, whatever, whatever it takes because I'm going to make this vision mine, and I'm going to make it real. So when did you finally realize that you could play professionally? Well, I don't know how long you have on this podcast, but I, uh, after my senior year, grade 12 of high school, you know, I wasn't uh, a top recruit out of high school. I'd only played, really, a year and a half of football. I came out grade 11. I sat on the bench for most of the year, and I played grade 12. I was pretty good, but I wasn't unbelievable. So I got a, lo a scholarship to a local school, Simon Fraser University in Burnaby. And I thought, okay, I'm moving forward. I've still got a chance. I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. I kept telling myself this. I don't know if I really believed it or not. But after my first year of university, uh, my stomach got really bad again. And I, and I don't have time to get into all of it, but because of my appendix before, my stomach had never been good again. My, 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 a lot of my uh, internal organs were, were really kind of shot. My liver was destroyed from, from all the toxins from the appendix before. So I wasn't in good shape. And when you went to university and you're a lineman, you got to get big. So I started eating everything. You know, I, I was about 235, 240 pounds. I went to university. And to be a professional lineman, you got to get up to about 300 pounds. So I was eating all kinds of food, like just ridiculous amounts. And my second year in university, my stomach, it went crazy again. And I ended up having a lot of ulcers all through my stomach and a lot of internal bleeding. And I had to quit. I had to, I had to leave football. 
and they thought I had Crohn's disease. And I went through all this testing, through all these gastrointestinal specialists. They didn't find it. They, they said they, I, I didn't have it, but I really, really had a fully irritated lining of my bowel just from the damage that had happened. And, and there was a lot of problems with it. And eating food at that point became really hard. I couldn't digest much, and I had to move home. I actually had to drop out of school for a year, and I was told I'd never play football again. Uh, long story short, I missed three years. I lost almost 100 pounds, and everybody had told me to sort of give up and move on with my life, and it was time to do something different. Uh, and maybe maybe for a moment I believed that, maybe, but truthfully, I, I, that vision never left me, and, and it became more of a mission now. And, I, and my mind had to keep going, how am I going to solve this problem, not how am I going to use this as an excuse. And for three years... I searched for answers. I, I talked to every naturopath, every dietitian, every doctor, every specialist, everybody. And I kept looking for someone that would say, this is how we can do it. And every time someone said, this is why you can't do it, I went looking for a new, new person that would say, listen, I don't need to know why I won't make it. I need to know how I can. And finally, we got to the point where I, I found somebody that would work with me, and we did what was called a reintroduction diet. So we, we started with boiled chicken and rice only three times a day and, and, and bottled water. And after a month, I think we added a yam. And then after a week of that, we added a banana. And, and I went through an entire year of adding one food at a time to find out what I could eat and what I couldn't. And if I, and it didn't work, you eliminated it. If it could, you ate it for a week and you added another one to the program until you built a staple of foods that my stomach could handle, well, somewhat handle. And that became what I ate. And I ate it again and again, and I slowly started working out again. And, and my college football team had totally forgotten about me. And, and that's actually the true story of how I ended up in Germany. I, I thought I could play again, and I was too scared to, to call my university coach and say, I'm coming back after three years and make it this big deal and then maybe fail. So my brother brought me over to Germany and said, why don't you come over here and try to play a little football? And, and nobody knows who you are, so if it doesn't work out, you know, you don't have to be embarrassed amongst your friends like you let everybody down again. And if it does work out, well, then go home and finish up your university career. And so that's what I did. I went to Germany where nobody knew me and nobody knew, you know, if I couldn't make it as a player, there was no expectations anyways. I was just my brother's little brother. And I did okay. And I came back to university and played my final season. And so my college story is a little bit crazy. You know, I played my first season and my last season. I missed the three in between. And I made it back and I was, and I was a college All-American. I mean, I was 300 pounds strong. I made it all the way back. And I was a college All-American on a team that won two games. And at that moment, I realized, there's nothing I can't do with my life if I'm willing to put in the work and do what it takes. And from that moment on, I went on, I got drafted fourth overall in the CFL draft, and I, I knew at that time that nothing would stop me. Although, I, you don't have to ask the next question, but I got drafted. Toronto Argonauts took me with their first overall pick, fourth overall in the draft, and then I got cut. <laughs> they cut me. They cut me in my first training camp after being their number one pick. So it's kind of crazy how you can go very high up and get knocked right back down the next day. So you do have to be ready for anything. Yeah, that must have sucked. Yeah, it did suck. Uh, and it, it made you question everything once again. It made you question whether you were good enough. These people said that you're not good enough, then these people must know what they're talking about. You, you question it, but you also have to learn that what you're going to do is what you're going to do. And you're not going to rely on feeling good or bad about what other people say. You're just going to do what you're going to do, no matter what. And for a moment there, you feel down the dumps and you figure you should quit because these people tell you you're not good enough. But then you remind yourself of everything you've been through. And you remind yourself that how many other people told you you should quit and how you just kept moving forward with what you wanted to do. And you only focus on what you can handle what, or what you can do. So, you know, what can I do? I, we got on the phone. We called other teams to see who wanted to deal with me. Instead of feeling sorry for myself, you get busy with your mission. And you get back to the gym and you work out and you get training and you get back on that phone and you keep finding out how can I keep playing instead of why I can't. And then Montreal said, sure, we'll take you. So I went to them and, you know, I was the lowest man on the totem pole. I, I was a nobody on the team, but I was still moving forward. I kept pushing my mission. I was going to keep going and, you know, and I, I crawled my way back up. After you lost that 100 pounds in uh, college, how long did it take you to gain it back? About, about about that last year. So my first year, I was I, I missed three years, right? So my first year, I got really sick, and I couldn't eat anything. I was I was about 200 and, 290 pounds or so when I got really Probably lost about 80-something. I got down about 210, really thin. I flurried there for about a year as I was home trying to find out how, what I could eat. I never left my house. My stomach was always seizing, cramping. I was bleeding. I sat there about a year, and then the third year, I once I realized things I could eat, I spent that third year building it all back up, and I was back up to 280 kind of 290 and I made it back to SFU at 300 pounds so it, it took a full year of just really really working at it eating only the foods I could weightlifting religious not doing much else with my life being completely disciplined and focused on the task could you tell me about a time when something didn't work out for you 
and you were disappointed at the time, but now you're grateful it turned out that way? Well, sure. I think I just told you a bunch of times. My second year within pro football, so I'd been cut by the Argos, like I told you. I went to Montreal. They traded me midway through that season to the BC Lions. So in my first year of football, I'd been on three teams, and I'd never played a game. So here I get ready for my second year at BC Lions. I think I'm going to make it now. I'm going to be their star. And I got a football coach that year that was really tough on me, my positional coach. And he was one of those old school coaches that would, uh, you know, talk down to you, talk down to you and, and really not treat you well. And, you know, he was just one of those guys that would belittle you and, and, and make you feel bad. And I took that personally. I got really, I really couldn't handle it. And I actually quit. I walked away from the team that year. I quit football. And people, maybe people forget this. I quit during training camp, my second year pro. And I said, I don't, I can't handle anything like this. I don't, I don't need someone talking to me like that. And, you know, I felt sorry for myself that I, why was I stuck with such a mean coach and this guy's so bad and, and all this nonsense. And, you know, I took a couple of days of feeling sorry for myself and then uh, came to my senses and realized this is my mission. This is what I want to do with my life. How can I let somebody else dictate how I'm going to feel and what I'm going to do? And, and I came back to the team and, the rest is history. I, you know, I became the starting center, and off we went and had a great career. But I learned a valuable lesson there to not let anybody else have that kind of power over my emotions to make me feel horrible and bad and then make bad decisions based on that. And from that moment on, uh, coaches can be good or bad to me and whatnot. It wasn't going to change how I went about doing uh, what I was going to do. Who was the best coach that you've ever had? Uh, my positional coach for most of my career after that season his name is Dan Durazio. He was my offensive line coach. He's still the offensive line coach for the BC Lions. What I love most about Dan is he cares about his players so much, and what he does is he looks for any way to make you better. And I, and I mean across the entire board, and he will spend well above and beyond the expected hours finding anything that he can do to help me or any other player that is coaching be the best that they can be. And he cares about the details. He teaches you to care about the details, not just, you know, this is how you block somebody or, or this is how the players run. He breaks it down to the hows and the whys of every single part of that play or that block. And he taught me valuable lessons in life to really drill down and master what you're doing and really care about every part of the process. And that's something that, you know, worked well for me in football and I've been able to carry it forward, I, at least I try to, uh, for the rest of my life. When you were younger, who was your favorite football players? Uh, well, my brothers. My brothers were my heroes growing up. You know, I had a lot of other ones, I guess, through the NFL, and there was quite a few of them, but I was fortunate enough to have older brothers that I looked up to, and, and I would say they were my favorite. If you could put a message on a fortune cookie, what would it say? What you do isn't who you are, how you do it is. And by that, I mean, I think a lot of people wrap up uh, who they are in terms of the job they have or the career they have. But I think what's more important is how you go about doing it. And that's more who you are, whether you work with passion or loyalty or you're committed to the process more than just, you know, I'm a football player or I'm a whatever it may be. I, I think it's how you do it. It's what matters. Well, that's awesome. <laughs> Going from playing college to playing in the German Football League to then playing in the Canadian Football League. Was it hard to make those transitions? Yep. What was the hardest part? Every level that you move up, the players get better and faster. So, you know, just when you get comfortable and good at one level, when you jump to the next one, everyone's better and really everybody's faster. So you, you have to learn. You have to basically speed up everything against better players. So there's always that adaption time where you feel slower and clutchier than everybody. And yesterday when you were in the other league, you felt faster and stronger, but now all of a sudden, you're at the bottom again, and you got to work your way up. Football fans are very passionate. Does it surprise you with how much they know about you? Sometimes, yeah, but you just said it. They are very passionate, and they tend to really get into the players. So it's, it's, it's always kind of, uh, for me, it's, I guess it's flattering that they care enough to learn about the players. How did you get used to the increased attention? You know, you, you enjoy it for, for what it is, but then you, you go back to your family on the weekends, and you remind yourself you're just... Uh, you know, you're a son, your brother, or a husband. You're still just a normal guy, so you don't you try not to let it get to you. Can you tell me about the craziest or cutest fan moment? By far, I would say the craziest was we were in Saskatchewan, 2008, playing a playoff game there. We were the underdog, and I don't know if you remember, but we were the underdogs in the playoff game. We ended up winning the game, and before the game, a couple of us linemen made a pact that if we won, there's that little there used to be in the in the old Regina in the Taylor Field there. The uh, they used to have a hot tub that fans could pay to have drinks or whatnot watch the game from the hot tub 
we said if we won, all the old linemen were going to run and jump in that hot tub and celebrate. And we won. And the rest of our team's partying, running off to the to the locker room. We take off and jump in this hot tub. And the fans are all upset because we just beat them. And we're jumping in this hot tub. And the guy that owned the hot tub, he's trying to pack it up, he's trying to get us out. And the fans started throwing all their soda bottles and beer bottles at us in the hot tub. So we had to take the cover of the hot tub and use it like a shield and get escorts off the field. So that's a... That's one of the real fun memories that I remember from my career. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. Why did you choose to play offensive line? I didn't. They chose for me. <laughs> I uh, just went out to play football, and that's where they put me. So, you know, I I learned to uh, just get good at what, what I had an option to get good at. I mean, it was, you know, I wasn't fast enough to be anything else, and uh, they put me there, so that's what I worked at. In your speech, you talked about there being four physical things you need to have to be a professional offensive lineman. Hand size, height, foot size, and arm span. It surprised me that you said that you had none of these requirements. Could you explain the specific requirements? Yeah, well, for offensive linemen, you're talking the biggest guys, probably the biggest athletes in the world, and your job is to push other people out of the way. So if you have lots of height, they can make you very heavy. Okay, they, I mean, they can make you heavier or lighter, but they can't make you taller. So the, the, the taller you are, generally the bigger person you can become. I can make someone that's six foot seven much bigger than someone that's six feet tall. We can just add weight to people. So they want height because it means you're a bigger frame. So if you're not, you know, they can't make you taller, so they want you taller. They want people six foot four, six foot five, six foot six. I'm barely six foot one. Uh, they want long arms because they, think about it. If your job is to push someone out of the way and my arms are longer than your arms, I can push you before you can even touch me. It really doesn't matter how strong you are because you can't reach me. They want very long arms. My arms are about a foot. If you do total wingspan, I'm probably six inches shorter on each side of my arm than what's needed. I have very short arms for my size. And the hand size, you know, you're grabbing and pushing people. The bigger your hands, the stronger your hands. The stronger your hands, the more you can grab and push people. They measure the hands from the thumb to the little finger across. You're seeing guys that are about 10 inches now. Massive, massive hands. Mine are barely eight. I have very small hands for a football player or offensive lineman. And foot size, you know, whatever you're putting your foot on the ground, the bigger the foot, the more balance you're going to have because you're trying to push people. You know, you're not going to get knocked over. You'll knock them over. I play with guys that size 15, 16, 17. I play with a guy that size 19 foot. Uh, you know, 14 and up is kind of what they want to see. I'm about 11 and a half. So I have very small feet for an offensive lineman. So the four things they look for, I don't have any of them. So I wasn't one of those guys that when they look out in a crowd and say, that's the kid we want. I've never, ever been that person. Since you didn't have the minimum requirements, how did you show that you deserved a chance to play? I worked hard in the things I could work hard at. I got as strong as I could. I got as quick as I could. I learned the game as best I possibly could. So when I was on the field, I could be smarter than the guy that was bigger and stronger than me, whether it be on how to run the play or how to make that block, uh, given, given the parameters I have. So I learned football inside out. I tried to become a better leader than everybody else. I basically focused on the things I could do, could do instead of worrying about things I didn't have, and that's what served me well. That's great advice, not just for your football life, but also for your daily life as well. If you were teaching your younger self to play your position, what would be the most important things? Is there a way to apply the 80-20 rule, where you put 20% of the work and get 80% of the results? Maybe there is, but I don't know of it. I, I think the best thing you can possibly do is to seek the very best coach out there and somebody to help guide you because it's really, really hard to coach yourself. You need to have special eyes and, and people watching you to make sure that you're not developing bad habits. I think the most important thing in high-level sports is to try to do it as properly as possible from the get-go because what I found in my career was – a lot of time and energy was was wasted undoing bad habits that I started at a young age because I didn't have good coaching at the get-go. So I think that the sooner you can get a good coach, the more you can spend your time doing things right and ingraining the good habits uh, and, and less time you'll have to waste undoing poor habits or, or getting rid of compensation patterns that you may do. So, you know, I don't know if there's, a, if there's an exact 80-20 correlation of sports because you cannot replace repetition because you're not dealing with a business or a company you're dealing with the human body and, and you have to you have to get the volume of reps so the body can instinctually know how to do it and the sooner you can learn to do it right the less time you can waste you know getting rid of bad habits improper ways of doing things and all those other things that detract time and energy away from doing it correctly what books websites or camps would you use Again, excellent question. When I was growing up, 
there was no there was no websites. I I was pre-internet during my my high school days. So I uh, you know, and there was some book and, and there was some camps, but really it was it was the it was ability to find a local coach. And I, I'm going to be honest with you today, particularly with football, I'm not in touch as as some people are in terms of what's online for coaching. I know specifically for offensive linemen, there's a great great teacher out there. His website, I think it's called Built to Dominate. His name is LaCharles Bentley. He was a played in the NFL for maybe seven, eight years, and now he's dedicated his life to uh, training offensive linemen, not, you know, not for any specific team, but just improving the position. And he's a great online resource. He has free information, videos, drills, uh, you know, toys that you can buy that will help work your craft and really he's a guy that is presenting the very best way to do things so the neat thing about today's world and and the internet is there's no excuse for not being able to find the information you know in my day uh, you had to be lucky you had to be lucky to have a coach because there wasn't a ton of resources or the ability to access this information and and today there really is you know you can learn what you can online but in the end nothing can replace physically working with somebody in terms of a coach and then physically uh, competing against other players whether it be camps or ongoing practices so you sort of need it all you can't get it all done with one piece i love football last year i used my own money to hire a personal trainer to teach me how to run properly and develop a cardio and strength workout to increase my fitness for football i constantly watch play clips on my ipad instead of gaming and my love for football is why i started this podcast I dream about playing football professionally. I heard a story about how you shattered your foot so bad that Wally Buono told you that it was time for you to retire. But you got healthy again and were able to play. Then Wally told you that you could decide when you wanted to retire. Can you take me back to that time when you made the decision to retire? Sure. Uh, you know, I, I retired after the 2013 season. Uh, I shattered my foot in 2009. I had to have, to have it surgically rebuilt. Heading into the 2010 season, Wally had told me that was going to be it for my career. And, you know, I was going to be a backup for my final season. And I, I wasn't willing to accept that. Uh, I quietly uh, or should say publicly accepted. I didn't want to become a problem or a nuisance, but internally I was prepared to prove them wrong and show them I could still play. And I, and I won my starting job back in 2010. And then 2011, uh, I was a league all-star and we won the Grey Cup. In 2012, I was an all-star again. And then 2013, you know, I didn't, I didn't know that that was going to be my last season, but, you know, the course of playing football for 20 some odd years of my life had caught up with me and I had three really really bad herniated discs in my lower back and one of them was crushing my uh, sciatic nerve and if anyone's ever had sciatic nerve pain you know how debilitating it can be and it really doesn't let you do anything and, and my, my my disc was, was crushing the nerve I couldn't get dressed I couldn't bend over I couldn't move I mean I was in in, in ag agonizing pain for that entire final season i need to have back surgery to end up removing three of my discs and when that happened i and i was 37 years old i'd played 13 years you know i had to make a decision now you know do i really want to still do this i i was hoping you know i had a wife and we wanted to start a family and once you have an operation like three discs getting taken out of your back you start thinking beyond football now and you start looking at the rest of your life and I I had to dig down deep and and say you know what do I want to do with my life and and I realized I wanted to be a good father and and physically be active and be there and and, and do some other things and I made the decision at that point that football wasn't my dream anymore you know I had lived it I had done it and it was time to do other things it was time to uh, not destroy my body any further Uh, you know I had ticked every box basically I told people there was nothing all the dreams I had when I was a kid I I ticked all the boxes there was nothing to come back for and there was hopefully a long life to live after this so I, I now wanted to shift gears and get healthy and make sure that I was physically able to be a productive adult and you know be a good dad and physically be there so I remember looking deep inside and it was different than when I shattered my foot I, I didn't have anything else to prove anymore to anybody and I said you know I I, I don't want to do this anymore I, I don't want to play football anymore I, I I've done it uh, and I want to do other things now so it, and I would think I was very fortunate I mean when some people say I wasn't I had to have three discs taken my back and I finished my final season with with, with surgeries but I, I really think I was fortunate that I was able to come to Wally and tell him that, you know, I, I, I'm deciding to move on. I realize a lot of athletes don't get that opportunity. You know, it gets taken from them. I was able to tell him that, you know, I, I, I want to move on and do some other things in my life now. 
Yeah, to give up something that you love so much, it must have been a pretty hard decision. It, it was, but I, I loved football be, because I got to compete with my friends. You got to win. Uh, you got to work hard. And, and you, you, you got to really push yourself. And, and really, Winston, you know, that's what I loved about it. And you're able to do that in so many things in life. You're able to work hard, compete with your friends, uh, win, you know, learn to lose and, and get up every day and try your best. And you can put that in anything you want. And the reality was all my friends I grew up playing football with and doing that with had all moved on years ago. I played so long that I was searching for why am I still doing this? And... It wasn't to fulfill or to achieve any of my goals anymore because I accomplished them all. So it was time to do something new. It was time to go on a quest and, you know, for lack of a better word, go be a rookie again in, the, in, in a different world where I have to start from the bottom and, and really challenge myself from the bottom up now and, and you know, and say goodbye to football when, while I still could, while it was in my control to do so. And I, uh, yeah, it was hard. Don't, don't get me wrong. It's what I want to do since I was a little kid and I did it. And moving on is tough and scary and, and challenging, but I was happy to be able to do it on my terms. Now we will get into some rapid fire questions. Okay. Fire away. What has been your best purchase that you've made under $150? That would probably come in right at around $150. bucks. i would have to say a Nutribullet blender. I uh, use that probably twice a day, every single day since the day I've gotten it. I don't think I've gotten uh, that much value out of anything else I've ever bought. Yeah, my mom has one of those, you know, and she uses it all the time. I think she got it like two years ago, and that's what she blends up every single day. Yeah, it's it's fantastic, and I'm a big uh, I'm a big shake guy. Like I'll, I'll have a shake in the morning, or maybe after workout, and even in the evenings. And I in the Nutribullets, you can throw anything in there. I'll throw broccoli and spinach and peanut butter and berries and ice or whatever you want to throw in it, just whoop, right up, and then you got yourself a nice uh, nice shake to drink down. I, yeah, I, I love it, and that uh, probably was about 150 bucks. But boy, have I gotten value out of that. When you hear the word success, who do you think about? My parents. Uh, why do you think about them? Because they've raised six children that are all great people and that have a very strong family tie to each other. They, they, they raised a family that cares about each other deeply and they've been able to do that while they both worked full, full-time full careers, worked hard to, to, to provide for us. And, you know, I'm 40 years old now. My brothers are older than me and my, my sister is a little bit younger than me and I'm one of six kids and everybody's close. Everybody's friends. Everybody gets along. And I attribute that to my parents just being fantastic, loving uh, parents. And then I only hope to, uh, you know, be somewhat close to them in terms of the success that they've been able to do in terms of parenting and raising a family. Do you think you're a success? I I don't think of it. I mean, maybe I am. I, I've never really stopped to think about that. I've always just tried to keep working at what I'm doing. You know, I, I'm not big on pausing and reflecting whether it's success or not. I I hope or I like to think that I'm I'm doing what I want to do with my life and, and staying true to who I am and trying to be a good person that's making people's lives better around me. Uh, you know, I don't know. I, I, I've, you know, I'm happy. I'm happy with what I've done in my life, but I'm, I'm more excited about what I'm still doing and what I'm about to do. And, you know, I, I guess the measure of success is, uh, you know, how well you sleep at night and, you know, in terms of, of, of feeling fulfilled with what you're doing. And I, I love my life. I'm, I'm happy with my life. I love the people I'm surrounded with, and I, and I love the work I'm doing. So by that parameter, yeah, I, I guess I'd be a success. I, I would consider myself so. But, you know, it, it doesn't – it's not a destination. I'm not there. It's something you got to keep working at and doing every single day. You've had some pretty big career highlights. What has been your favorite memory as a player? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I, I I would probably say the first time I ever got into a game. And that sounds crazy because we've won Grey Cups and, and all this other fun stuff. But the 2002 uh, was my second year in the league. And I, you know, I played a little bit on some special teams plays and whatnot. But I was a backup and we were on the road in Hamilton and our our starting center at the time, Jamie Terrace, who went on to be a, a Hall of Famer, hurt his knee in the middle of the game and I had to go in. And it was the first time I was playing center in a professional football game. And, and Damon Allen, you know, the, the league, uh, you know, the future Hall of Fame, one of the all time greats ever was our quarterback. And all of a sudden it was real. And I had to go up there and, and, and play with all these guys. And I played 200 games in my life. I can't say I remember them all, but boy, do I remember every play of that one. And that's a memory that uh, I will never forget. Well, that must have been a great memory. 
Yeah, it was great it's, until I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, we were in the fourth quarter of that game, and it was a tight game, and we were getting close to, uh, I think, scoring to go ahead to win. And I was so wound up because I was just so excited. Damon had, had called a play and under center, you know, right where he's under me taking the snap, but he was in the shotgun formation. And I just, I just was so wound up. I wasn't thinking and I snapped it hard. Like he was right there to take it, but he was five yards back and shotguns. The ball went 10 yards high in the air, way over his head. He scrambled to get it. He got sacked and we got knocked out of the scoring position. And we ended up losing the game. I mean, I, I thought right there, my career was over. I thought they would cut me and I, you know, I, I tell everybody and I thought everyone, the whole team would hate me and I'm going to be gone. And, and Damon was the first guy to come up to me in the locker room after the game and, and said, uh, you know, great game, great game, kid. You're going to have a good career. And I'd never forget that he took the, took the time to make me feel better when he knew that I thought I, you know, that I would probably end my career on that. And that was a, a memory again that I'll never forget. Well, Angus, I want to thank you for your time. If people want to get a hold of you or book you for a speech, where's the best place for people to get a hold of you? I have a very simple website. It's called it's Angus Reed 64. So A N G U S R E I D 64.com, you know, has recent speaking stuff, some testimonials and some contact information there. If anyone ever wants to reach out. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Winston. Have a good day. You too, buddy.